2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I just want to read from verses 8 down through to verse 15. And verse 8 says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we, whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. This morning, I want us to consider the terror of the Lord. And this is a very weighty subject of who God is in his terror and the fear of the Lord. We live in a world today, in Christendom today, where we hear so much and it's almost all we hear is, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. It's all about love and grace. And that's true. God's a loving God and God's a gracious God. But I want us to consider this morning the truth that God is a great and terrible God. And God is to be feared. Yes, He's gracious. Yes, He's merciful and He's long-suffering. But I believe in today's day and age, that characteristic of God has been magnified above all of His other characteristics. And it's almost like the fact that God is to be feared and that He is a holy God and a just God is almost ignored. Especially in these modern churches today that teach you that you can have your best life now and live how you want and live in sin. But I want us to consider this thought on the terror of the Lord. You see here, in verse 9, Paul saying here, wherefore we labor, he's saying we're confident in verse 8, willing rather to be absent from the body, be present with the Lord. Paul wanted to be with Christ. He says, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. And you see in verse 10, why? Because we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to stand there one day, brethren. And Paul knew this here. This was sobering him. And that's why he said we labor whether present or absent. It's, we're laboring for him. So we can be accepted of him. It's for him. And in verse 11 it says, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. This idea of knowing carries the thought of being aware of, beholding, considering, and understanding. Understanding. We've heard a lot about that in the last few weeks. Understanding. This word carries this idea of even understanding. Knowing therefore. And you see what, what this word even here is therefore. It throws us back to what he's just said. 
about the judgment seat of Christ, how we're all going to stand before Him, whether present or absent. He's laboring for Him because we're going to stand before Christ one day. He's going to judge us uh, according to what we've done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. And He says, Knowing therefore the terror, the terror is alarm or fright, be afraid exceedingly to fear carries this idea of fear of the Lord and you see that so much throughout scripture it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom the fear of the Lord the fear of the Lord but I want to look at an aspect of the fear of the Lord in the terror of the Lord and his greatness and his judgment and then he says we persuade men to convince to try and convince and to pacify to consolidate but because of the judgment seat of Christ, yes. But knowing, knowing who God is in His character, Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, brethren, we know that when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, if we're born again here this morning, we're not going to be judged uh, as we heard Christ died in our place. He took our sin. Even 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, we're not appointed to wrath. But there still needs to be this element of fear in our hearts, knowing that we will stand before Him. Even as believers, that we're going to stand before Him in judgment and we're going to be judged for our works. And this is... Uh, a motivating factor, a partial motivating factor, I believe. We see further down the motivation of Paul, but a, a motivation for Paul to tell men of Christ, knowing who God is and His judgment. And brethren, I want to encourage us in understanding and knowing God in His character of His judgment, that we would see the seriousness and that it would cause us to want to persuade men. Paul goes on to say, just continue down briefly, for we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance. Obviously, there's people here that were glorying in appearance, and Paul's saying he's, he's giving a reason why he's doing what he's doing, because of the judgment seat of Christ, because of the terror of the Lord. It's not for these selfish gain of to try and get a following, which we see even today. So many people preach the name of Jesus only for a following. They don't fear God. They don't even know God. They're unregenerate. And these, there's obviously these people here that are um, accusing Paul to somewhat and he's giving them, the Corinthians here, an occasion to glory on, on his behalf. That it was not him and why he was doing it, it was for Christ and it was for the judgment seat of Christ and the terror of the Lord. And then he says, for whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God or whether we be sober is for your cause. And then he says, it's the love of Christ that constrains us. But brethren, looking back here at verse 11, and even verse 10, in the judgment seat of Christ, there is this element for us as believers that we ought to fear. There is. But if we as believers, brethren, ought to fear that day of judgment and we're born again and we're children of his how much more how much more someone who is outside of Christ ought to fear that day of judgment 
It's not a light thing, this day of judgment. God is a God of love, yes. He is. We know that it was demonstrated in Christ. The greatest demonstration of love ever shown to mankind is Christ and Christ coming for us. Yes, we know the love of Christ. But do we know the wrath of God and the judgment to come one day that God is going to pour out? Do we actually understand that? Do we even consider it? Do we even know about it? Or is it just something that we know that's in the Bible, but we skip over it? Because it is. It's a serious, sobering thought. And this sobered Paul, knowing the terror of the Lord. There was a fear. When you consider what we deserve as sinners, we ought to fear for those who are outside of Christ. We actually ought to fear for them. I was actually driving here on the way, meditating on this here, and we're driving here this morning, and there was a crash on Wakefield Road, and there was a helicopter. And when there's a helicopter involved in a crash and they get airlifted out, there's obviously serious. And I couldn't help but think, I wonder if that person's going to die and I wonder where they'll go. Honestly, where? It's serious. Thinking about the judgment of God. I just want to quickly run through a few things in the Scriptures just to help you to see who God is in His character and how He deals with mankind. Yes, He's loving... But let's just go right back to the beginning. Let's go right back to the beginning in Genesis 3. God created this world perfect and He gave Adam and Eve a choice and they disobeyed Him. They disobeyed God. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, we see what God did. There was death That came now because of sin. But look what happened in verse 22. It says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. You think, oh, but it was just a small thing. No, it wasn't. That was a serious thing. It was sin against God and God said, that's it. Death came by sin and they were cast out of the garden and they no longer had access to the tree of life. You see, God here, He's merciful, yes, but they sinned. Oh, but God, He's merciful. No, they sinned and they were judged for that. They were judged for their sin. God's forgiving, yes, but there was consequences for sin. And there is consequences for sin. You go to, uh, you look at the the account of the flood. God's merciful, yes. But He sent a flood to destroy the earth. This is our God. He sent a worldwide flood to destroy mankind. This is God. He's a righteous God. He's a holy God and He hates sin. And because of the wickedness that was abounding, God sent a flood. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And there was only eight people that survived. Everyone else that breathed died in that time. Only eight people. You think about it. Out of the whole world, 
God slew everyone except eight. He killed everyone. And he was right and just in doing that because he is holy and they had broken God's law. Genesis 6, 7, 8 says, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God is righteous and God will judge sin. Brethren, I want you to consider the fact and not to, to ever forget the fact that God will judge sin. He's going to judge sin because he's righteous and he's holy. And because of his holiness and because of his righteousness, yes, he loves us, brethren. We know that because of Christ, we have forgiveness. But there needs to be an element of terror in our heart, knowing who God is. He will judge sin. Psalm 9.8 says, He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people of unrighteousness. Psalm 96.10 says, Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. God will judge righteous judgment. He will judge righteously. And because He is holy, He will judge perfectly. And the punishment is fair. If we... We, we say it on the street, I say it to people on the street, if we break the law, we're going to expect the punishment. If we speed, we're going to get a fine. But, and we can understand that, but as soon as it comes to the judgment of God, we say, no, but God's loving, He's going to pass over our sin. And the world looks at today, oh, God's a loving God, and, and these, these false teachers who claim the name of Christ say, it's okay, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, don't worry about your sin, just live how you want. That's a curse. They need to see the love of Christ. Yes, but what about the judgment of God on sin? You can't just keep living how you're living. God will judge your sin one day. And we need to fear and tremble before this. We don't have a God who can be bribed or coerced like the judges of today. We have corrupt judges. They're so corrupt. This, this judicial system we have, it's praise God for it, but it's, it's not scriptural in all its elements. Let's be honest, the judges are human, they're not God, they're not perfect, they will make mistakes. Judges can be bribed, they can be bought off, they can make bad decisions, but God never will. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. These people who say they're going to get to heaven by their good works are going straight to hell. You cannot bribe God with your good works. It's not going to happen you will burn for eternity. You cannot pay off God. You can't buy Him off like the judges you can buy off today. You can pay money and you can go scot-free. But not God. But not God. Second Chronicles 19.7 says, Wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it, for there is no iniquity, iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect, of persons nor taking of gifts. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from, who you're related to, or your position or status in this life. It does not matter when you stand before God. It does not matter. God will judge righteously. Whether you're a king or a pauper, it doesn't matter. 
God is going to judge righteous judgment. He is fair and He's holy. Brethren, I want us to see who God is in His judgment because it's serious. Because one day, even brethren, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're not going to be judged uh, for our sin. Christ has taken our place. But this is a fearful thing when you consider God. I don't know if you've ever stopped and just meditated on God and the time you'll be before Him one day and being in His presence. God is a God to be feared and a God to be praised. Nahum 1.2 says, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries and He revengeth the wrath for His enemies. You can see here God is judging His enemies in vengeance and wrath. Oh, but this isn't, this isn't God. God's loving. God's loving and God's gracious. No, He's a God of vengeance and wrath. This is the reality of who God is. Yes, God's loving, but He has vengeance and wrath. We need to understand that. Who can stand before His indignation, Nahum 1.6 says, and who can abide in the fierceness of His anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by Him. This is our God. This is the Creator, the one who made us He's just the same today. He is. He is God everlasting. You see in Psalm 7:11, God judgeth the righteous. And this here is a very interesting portion of Scripture. It says, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Hang on, but God's a loving God. God's a gracious God. God's a merciful God. Yes, but He's angry with the wicked every day. God hates sin. Sin came into the earth. Death came by sin. And God is going to judge sin. God hates sin. God is angry with the wicked every single day. You see in the Ten Commandments. This is God. This is the characteristics of God. In verse 5, Exodus 20, it says, "...there shalt not bow thyselves down to them, nor serve them." Talking about graven images... For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Hang on, God's a loving God. He's a good God. He's gracious. Yes, He is. But He's a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. This is God. And I really believe Paul knew who God was. He knew the Old Testament scriptures of who God was. He knew God. He knew God was loving and He knew the mercy of God in saving him. But he knew the wrath and the terror and the vengeance and the wrath of God that's going to be poured out one day even. And he could see it through the Old Testament. Like Josh said, you see judgment and you see mercy. You see judgment and condemnation and then mercy offered. God is good. But let's not just only see his goodness brother we need to see his goodness but we need to see his wrath also and know who he is in his dealings with mankind isaiah chapter 5 it's it's it goes so contrary 
these God being angry with the wicked every day, God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. These, these verses go so contrary to modern Christendom today. The, the, the modern church of today says it's all about grace. It's all about God is so good, doesn't matter what you do. And that's true to a certain point. If you come to Christ, He'll forgive you, yes. But all they say is God's good and God's gracious, God's loving, God's loving, God's loving, yes. But they never talk about sin. Why not? They never talk about God's judgment. Why not? <clears throat> Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. That put darkness for light and light for darkness. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own eyes. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. Which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore as the flame devoureth the stubble and the flame consumeth the chaff so their root shall be as rottenness and their blossom shall be shall go up as dust because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people and he hath stretched forth his hand against them and hath smitten them and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. God is doing this to his people? Hang on a second. Hang on a second. This doesn't run with the modern version of who they portray God to be. But this is God. This is God. His, his anger is kindled against his people? Yes. Yes. Didn't you see what they were doing? Calling good evil, evil good? Wicked. And God judged them. They didn't, they didn't get judged for no reason. They were wicked. They were unholy and unrighteous. And God was merciful, yes. But there comes a point when mercy finishes. Mercy ends. Enough's enough, the Lord says. And they were judged. God smote his own people. This doesn't. This goes totally contrary to what people and these false teachers portray God to be these, in this day and age. Goes totally against. But this is the Bible. This is the Word of God. This is who God is. And I'm sure you can think of so many, so many in the Old Testament. There's so many different instances and occasions where you can see the wrath of God and the judgment of God upon sin. Many. And we're not going to go to all of them today. But I want you to see and consider this is who God is. This is our God. He's a consuming fire. Do we ever consider God in the light that He's angry with the wicked every day? Do we ever consider God like this? You know, people might say, well, all you've done is just go to the Old Testament. Okay, let's go to the New Testament then. That's the God of the Old Testament. He's different now. We have a different God in the New Testament. Hang on a second. What? A different God in the New Testament? 
Hebrews 13. This is talking about Christ. In verse 8 it says this, Jesus Christ, different, no, the same. Yesterday, today, and for how long? Forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. Now, we can say that this was the Old Testament and what we've just looked at in these other passages. This is all the Old Testament. Okay. You can say that. But if we go to Acts 17, let's compare the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, with the God of the New Testament. And I would say God's very merciful in the Old Testament. And He's very gracious. Listen to this and what it says in verse 30 of chapter 17. It says, And the times of this ignorance, God winked at. In the Old Testament, God winked at so many things. But look what He says now, But now, but now, this is the New Testament now, right? But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. God was merciful back in the Old Testament. He's saying he's merciful. He winked at so many things, but now. You think God was ungracious and unmerciful, but now. But now. We just, hang on, that's the Old Testament. No, but now. God says everyone, everywhere needs to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. By that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men and that he hath raised him from the dead. He's going to judge Christ. Jesus is coming back to judge. There's a day appointed in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness. That You can say all you want. That was the Old Testament, but I say, but now. But now. Oh, God was just so harsh in the Old Testament, but now. He commands all men everywhere to repent. Everywhere. He winked at so many things in the Old Testament. You look at the Old Testament, you see so many things that people say, oh, God's, God's so inconsistent in the Old Testament. No, He was so merciful. He winked at so many things in His grace. But now, Christ has died. You're without excuse. You are without excuse. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. He's going to come back one day. In vengeance. It's going to happen. You think about even the New Testament, you think about the Jews, God's people. They rejected the Messiah and what happened? Now they're in blindness, in part. Hang on, but God's merciful and God's gracious and He overlooks. No. God's commanding all men everywhere now to repent. They rejected Christ and there was a consequence. God is holy and God is righteous and He will judge righteously. The Old Testament had many instances of God's judgment and you see even in the New Testament. But brethren, the greatest judgment is yet to come. The greatest judgment is still to come. We can look through the Old Testament, we can see the wrath of God, we can see the judgment of God. But the worst is yet to come. God is going to pour out His wrath when He comes back. 
And yes, Christ came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, but He is going to come back as the Lion of Judah. And in Joel 3.16 it says, The Lord shall roar out of Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. He's going to come back and the earth is going to shake and quake the earth. Because God is a great and terrible God. He's a God to be feared. Go to Revelation 1. This is, this is the humble Saviour we see through the New Testament. We see He came and humbled Himself in meekness. He died for our sin. But when He comes back, He's not coming to die for our sin. He's not coming to be the servant in, in dying for our sin and taking our place. He's going to come in judgment. That's how He's coming back. He came as the lamb. He's coming back as the lion. And there will be slaughter. That's the, if, you read the, if you read the scriptures, there's going to be slaughter. But this doesn't, this doesn't make sense with the God of the modern day, right? No, this is God. This is the God of eternity. Eternity past and eternity future. And in Revelation 1 and verse, we'll read from verse 10, and it says, John says, And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voices of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. But I want you to look at this here. This is John, the beloved, who leant on his breast. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. This is the, this is the Messiah, Christ Jesus the Lord, John leant on his breast when, when he first came. But in this revelation of seeing Christ coming back, he fell at his feet as dead. He wasn't leaning on his breast. He was at his feet as dead. He's coming back to judge. He's coming back to judge the world in righteousness. Because he has appointed a day. He's appointed a day. And he's going to come and judge the world in righteousness. What a fearful day that is for an unbeliever. What a fearful day. John 3, 89 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, and this is the condemnation 
that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. God's loving and he's merciful. But he's righteous. And he that believes not is condemned already. Judgment is coming. Verse 36, John 3 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. What a sweet promise. The everlasting life we have by faith in Christ. But what a fearful, fearful part. The next verse, this part is verses, And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But look at this here. But the wrath of God abideth on him. This is serious, brethren. This is God. This isn't just life and death. This is, this is eternal life or eternal condemnation under the wrath of Almighty God. And Hebrews 2 says, How can we escape if we neglect so great salvation? If you're sitting here this morning, you think, oh, it's okay, God's gracious, and one day when I stand before Him, I'll talk to Him and tell Him how good I've been, and we'll work it out between us. No, you won't. No, you won't. If John the Beloved fell at his feet as dead, you being not his child, what do you think you're going to do? You're not going to go and reason with God and say, well... I think I've probably done enough and we can kind of work this out and maybe we can do There's no bargaining with God, remember. He can't be bribed. He can't be coerced. No, you can't be good enough. No, you can't be holy enough. You can't be righteous enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can't. You won't escape. You will not escape if you neglect so great salvation. If you neglect Christ as the only way of salvation... You will abide under the wrath of God for all of eternity. That is reality. That is the justice of God. Brethren, did you know though, that if God were to take you and I, even as his children, and cast us into the pits of hell forever, he would be right in doing so? Because he's holy? It is only because of Christ, only because of Christ that we can even sit here today and sing and praise him. We deserve the pits of hell. We say, oh, that's for the scum of the earth. We are the scum of the earth. That's reality. We deserve the wrath of God. And Paul knew that. Paul knew the fear of God. He knew the terror of the Lord. And that's why he said, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. When you get a grasp on the terror of the Lord and who God is in His majesty then you might be gripped more by the love of Christ. I don't believe you'll be gripped, and I know for myself I haven't grasped the depth of the love of Christ because I haven't grasped the depth of His wrath and what I deserve. That's what we deserve, brethren. We say, oh, it's okay, we don't deserve hell. We'd... We deserve hell. But do we even think about that? No. We don't think about the wrath of God that should abide upon us, but for the mercy of and the love of Christ in taking our place.
Hell's a fearful place. It's the wrath of God poured out forever. Forever and ever and ever without end. Don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? Don't you know the wrath that's to come if you don't have Christ as your Savior? You face His wrath forever? These people you see in the Old Testament, they experience His wrath on a one-off time. You see it demonstrated in wrath and judgment. And that's bad. You see that, wow. But what about forever? That's fearful. First Peter 4, 17 and 18 says, For the time is come that judgment must begin where? At the house of God. And if it first begin at us, now this is sobering, if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinners appear? If we're just saved, what about the unrighteous and the ungodly? You look in Revelation 20. Brethren, I don't want this to be doom and gloom, but this is reality. It's, this is the reality of who our God is. This is God Almighty, which was which is and which is to come. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. This is who He is and this is the reality of the judgment on unbelievers, yes, one day. Revelation 20 verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which, was, which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And look at this, verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. God's eternal punishment and God's eternal wrath. If your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, one day when you stand before God in judgment and your name is not in the book, it's judgment forever. God's judgment and God's wrath forever. Lake of fire forever. Say, oh, but that's, that's just for the sinners that are wicked, the murderers and all these people. If you go to the next chapter, chapter 21, it says in verse 8, But the fearful, fearful, and unbelieving, that's not a murderer, and the abominable, and the murderers, there we go, and whoremongers and sorcerers, and idolaters, and you can say, oh, love, oh, I'm not fearful. I believe. That's okay. And all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's inescapable. 
You think you can hide from the wrath of God? You can't. You think you can escape? No. We're told to flee. Flee from the wrath to come. And where do you flee to? The cross of Christ. The only place for you to run and hide is at the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the only cleft in the rock from the wrath of God. Christ. He's our saviour. He's the only one who can take our sin away. And praise God, hallelujah. If you've come to Christ, you will not experience the wrath of God. That will be poured out upon unbelievers forever and ever. But it's a reality. There is wrath. There is judgment. There is fierce fierce wrath and indignation. And he's angry with the wicked every day. This is our God. He's a consuming fire. This is... This isn't a picnic. This isn't a walk in the park like these modern day prosperity preachers will teach us. No, this is serious. This is serious business. This is not just, oh, it's okay, we'll deal with it. No. No. This is serious. Well, God's just unloving, God's unmerciful, and I don't even believe this. Okay. A lot of people would say that. Oh, how could God do this and how could God do that? Romans 9, 20, ver, no, ver, Romans 9, verse 20 to 23 says, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made us thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honour another unto dishonour? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory? Don't question God. God is righteous. How dare you, the one who is made, question the one who made you and how he does what he does. He is perfect. You are not. He is the one who sees the end from the beginning, you only see right now. That's it. You don't see the end from the beginning. You aren't holy and you aren't righteous and you aren't just. Only He is. Don't question God and don't say, oh, but I know better than God and if I were God, I wouldn't. No. So many people say on the street, if I was God, I wouldn't do it like this. You're not God. I'm sorry. You'll be judged. God will judge you. And you will be punished eternally except you run to Christ. If you don't flee and cling to Christ, you are finished. Done. There's no second chances when you die. Oh, when I die, I'm just going to face... No. No. There's no second chances. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 5. Brethren, I've hope, I hope you've been able to see just a little bit of the glimpse of who God is and His wrath and judgment. And I want you to consider this, knowing, knowing this, that there's no second chances. Think about that. There's no second chances. Not for you, but for the lost. Think about the lost There's no second chances. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
But praise God, we know Christ, we're forgiven. Christ took our place. He bore the wrath of God for us. But brethren, the lost have no second chances. When they die, it's too late. It's too late. Don't we get it? It's too late when they die. That's why Paul says this. In the terror of the Lord, we persuade man. Paul says, I know what's going to happen. I know who God is. I have to tell people. These false teachers and whoever they were challenging Paul, they weren't about seeking the kingdom and the glory of God. And so they're saying, Paul's not about this here. So Paul's saying, no, no, no. I know God. And this is why I do what I do. Because I know him. And his terror. And he is to be feared. And that's a serious reality. But that still wasn't his main motivating factor. Yes, it's serious. Oh, brethren. We're never going to see the magnitude of the love of Christ. I really don't believe we'll see it until we see the magnitude of what we deserve and what Christ took in our place. Honestly, when we start to consider and understand the wrath that should abide upon us, but doesn't, because of Christ, we'll start to see and love Christ a whole lot more. We will. Because we know what we deserve. We know we deserve the wrath of God to abide upon us forever in the lake of fire burning with fire and brimstone where the worm dies not. Jude, verse 21, it says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion making a difference and others saved with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Brethren, God is so merciful to us. God is so long-suffering to us in extending Christ. We don't even... The human race doesn't deserve Christ. We don't deserve the free gift of salvation. There's certainly nothing we can do to earn it. But when we see the judgment and the wrath of God that we rightfully deserve, it'll help us to say, like Paul says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ constraineth us. It's the love of Christ that constrains us. It's not the fear and trepidation that God's going to judge me one day. No, Christ took our place. I want to love Him. I want to live for Him. I want to tell people of Christ and warn them to flee from the wrath to come. Because it's coming. Because he's appointed a day. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. It's going to happen. But so easy I find myself even doing it, going through life so busy with me. So busy with my life and my little world and not considering that there's millions of people that one day will abide under the wrath of God and someone needs to tell them. Someone needs to tell them. 
My question is this. First question is this. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ as your Saviour? And does He know you? Are you saved? The second question is this. If you are saved, do you understand the fear and the terror of the Lord? And does the love of Christ constrain you to tell others or not? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.16, For although I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, listen to this here, Woe, woe, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Woe is unto me if I... Paul says, necessity is laid upon me. I have to. I know what's going to happen one day to these people who die without Christ. Christ died for me. I want to love Him and live for Him. And I know He wants to save anyone who will come to Him. He won't cast them out. Does Christ's love constrain you this morning? Or do you understand it? I want to read one last passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 16. You can turn there. It's a, read a few verses, but I want you to consider this in light of what we've just heard, and what we've just read, and what we've just seen in who God is. Luke chapter 16, and I'm sure everyone here probably knows the story well. But I want to look at that again. I want to finish here. Verse 19 of chapter 16 in Luke says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now let's soberly and seriously consider what we're about to hear next. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. I'll read that again. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. And saith Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Wrong person. And too late. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Dip the, the tip of his finger in water. This is serious. This is not a game. This is reality. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and Lazarus, and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence... To you cannot, 
neither can they pass to us which would come from thence. Let's consider verse 27. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. How many people right now in hell are saying this? Send someone to my family. Send someone. Send Lazarus to my family because I don't want him to come here. Because they know the wrath of God that is abiding on them forever. Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, they persuade men. The rich man says, Send Lazarus. He says, no, I have Moses and the prophets. And even if someone went from the dead, they won't hear him. Send someone. How many people right now are saying, send someone to my family? Tell them. How much does the fear of God grip our hearts, brethren? Does it actually grip our hearts knowing that there's people burning in hell because they rejected Christ and the justice of God is upon them? They just want someone to tell family. Tell them. Because they know the reality now that God is just and he judges sin righteously. For the rich man, it was too late. His time was up. It was too late. Do we know the fear of God? Do we know the terror of the Lord? Do we know who God is? And does Christ's love constrain us? We deserve that judgment forever. We do, brethren. That's what we rightfully deserve. That's what we actually deserve. But for the mercy of Christ. And let us Remember what the rich man says. Send Lazarus. Tell him. Tell him. Tell him. Tell him. Because it's only Christ who can save. Let's pray.